With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The transformational show about life, laughter, and the pursuit of happiness. Delivered by good people doing good business and good things. We're your trustworthy resource for sharing personal stories and quality content conveyed with a hint of humor and a supersized side of sincerity. Why? To enhance the quality of your life, give you more professional, personal, and financial freedom, and to promote patriotism. All of our guests and experts' information and their shows are listed on our website, everythinghometalkshow.com. I'm your host, Michelle Swinnick. Thanks for listening to Everything Home, and enjoy the show. My special guest is a past guest of mine and a member of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace, Neil Bawa. He is the CEO and founder of Grow Capitus Investments and the founder and lead instructor of Multifamily U. Neil, I always love having you on the show because our conversations, they just flow kind of like an orchestra leader where you just want to, you want to pay attention and you just, you've got this nice little flow when it comes to the information that you deliver. So I will let you give a little bit more about your background, the company, the amazing webinars and seminars that you have on the multifamily you. Thank you. And that's music to my ears, you know, pun, pun intended for the orchestra, you know, piece. <laughs> Grow Capitus is a real estate investment company. We see America changing and turning. It's becoming a renter nation, and we're using data analytics and that mega trend to drive profits for our investors. We have about 500 investors actively investing. We buy properties all over the U.S. Uh, currently, last year, I believe, we bought close to $200 million worth of uh, properties, mostly multifamily. Uh, we also love to teach, so we, we take all of the data and analytics and insights that we have, and we present them for free on a website called multifamilyu.com. That's the letter U. And about 30 or 40,000 people that are interested in real estate come to that website and learn about real estate trends, long-term trends, economic trends, and how they affect your real estate profits. It's a great website, great content, just such great information. And you don't even have to be a real estate investor or care about real estate, but it applies to what I think is information that people should just know about the economy and how things operate in general. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's something that I'm very passionate about. I'm seeing so many different and exciting things have transpired since we last talked in your world. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I've been wishing people something along the lines of, I hope your 2020 as, is as good as my 2019 was. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Good for you. Yeah. So it looks like you split up from your past partner, which I knew that was coming. I had gone on the website yesterday and I've been getting some of the updates on the different projects and mm -hmm. you couldn't have better timing because it sounds like there is a heck of a lot of money out there that's looking for a yield, you know? It is. I, I, another one of my quotes is, there's never been a better time to find equity and never been a harder time to find properties because mm. they, that money is chasing properties with such um, aggression that I've been forced for you know almost two-thirds of my 
projects to pivot to new construction because the people are paying up so much that for a lot of value-add properties, the, the prices are crazy, and I can actually build for close to that price. So I've started to to build. When you build, you don't pay a premium to anybody because you know you're, you, all you're doing is buying some land. New construction projects have always been more profitable because more value is being created, right? You're going from mm-hmm. a land that's a piece of dirt, and you're ending up with this gorgeous brand new construction building. So the profits have always been higher, but the risks didn't make sense um, most of the time. You're taking a significantly higher risk. So a lot of investors are like, no, I don't want to do new, con- new construction because of the risk. And I don't, you know, I don't not want to have cash flow over two and a half years. But now I'm getting a lot of these savvy investors coming to me saying, you know, people are paying $100,000 a door for a building that's 40 years old with problems and, you know, uh, um, you know asbestos and all these kinds of challenges. And now I'm looking at what you're doing, and compared to the risks of buying these expensive buildings, new construction doesn't look, uh, you know, over risky anymore. And so, the the risk of new construction has not decreased one bit. It's a risky venture, but the risks of buying existing buildings have gone up such a great deal that now new construction looks like a better bet. Which you know, it's odd, but it's true. Now, do you think? because there is so much cash in the system, whether it's borrowed or true money and the prices are being driven up on pieces of junk, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. do you see that that is a recipe for disaster, just like it was back in 2008, even though that was a lot more borrowed money? I mean, what do you think? Are we just in uncharted territory where it's kind of a combination of bad and good? I think it's a combination of bad and good, because I have belief, and I teach webinars on this, that the price of money has changed permanently. At this point of time, we are in, a, in an environment where it, this is not something that the U.S. is doing. Every major economy in the world is cutting interest rates. I mean, look at this. We have 3.5% unemployment. We've created 24 million jobs in the last 10 years, and the Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates, Right. So mm-hmm. even imagining this before 2008, people would think that, you know, I was completely insane if I said this. Um, and given the nature of that, given the worldwide debt load, I think we're in an extended period of low interest rates, which could last, you know, another 10 or 15 years. And we'll probably end with a severe meltdown. But given that, given that that is going to happen, uh, it is normal for prices of assets to go up. So, there's definitely some level of irrational exuberance that I'm seeing in multifamily and single family and, and the stock market. But I cannot say, you know, looking at the data from 2008, I cannot say that there's a comparison. 2008 was just an incredible mess, just an incredible mess. The people that are holding these properties at this point of time definitely, definitely have a lot more means um, are, are, yeah, there's a lot more professionals holding properties, both single family and multifamily, which is not good news for the nation, right? Because basically the last, over the last 10 years, we've transferred trillions of dollars from people, you know, from, you know, the average American to richer folks, right? But those richer folks have more means. So if there is a recession, they can hold on to it, right? I think that, that multifamily will do, do okay, even if the next recession looks like 2008, simply because the quality of people holding the assets is a lot better. 
their balance sheets are a lot more solid than probably when they went into the 2008 mess. We're seeing a slowdown now, right? So, I mean, prices are not going up for multifamily as much anymore. In 2019, there was a plateauing effect. It didn't quite plateau, but it was very close. Um, so I think that the roaring price increases of 2014, 15, 16, 17, and some part of 18 have come to an end. In New York, prices are going backwards. So I think that we, I think we're in a moderation period going forward. To some extent, we're seeing institutions back off, but the problem is that with, with interest rates world over at zero or lower, uh, the money from outside the U.S. keeps flowing in and kind of filling in that, that vacuum. We are the best-looking pig in the pigsty worldwide. And so there's just a huge amount of interest in people to buy our real estate. And people have now, in the last two years, I'm seeing the, uh, the non-U.S. money much more interested in commercial and apartment real estate than they were in you know, buying these fancy single-family homes. I think that was a great phase and single-family benefited. But that has slowed a great deal, especially the money from China, where they were buying single-family homes, seems to have dried up. Today, the money that's coming in is definitely going more into the scaled asset classes, you know, multifamily, industrial, hotels. And so that, there's definitely still a lot of money coming in, and it's, it's keeping the prices up. Do you feel that your investors are a balance between foreign investors and domestic, or is it spiked a little bit in, uh, with uh, foreign investors coming in because they see your lucrative returns on these new construction projects rather than, like you mentioned, the older stuff? I haven't seen foreign investors really look at new construction because they're thousands of miles removed from where the project is. So almost all of the foreign money appears to go into existing product because they feel it's more tangible, right? It's like, okay, my name's on the deed on this 300-unit property. I might be paying up for it, but you know, big deal. If I'm in Japan, you know, I'm going to make no money on that because interest rates in Japan are negative. Um, so I might as well park it in the U.S. You know, the Japanese currency has devalued by 26% anyway. So if you park the money here and get no return for it, you're still good, you know, 26%. Yay. Um, because of devaluation, continuing devaluation of the Japanese yen. So uh, there's a lot of that kind of mindset, but it t tends to go into to, uh, existing properties. It does help us because when our property is constructed, it is an existing property. And those people do like buying newer stock. I don't see a lot of foreigners buying 70s and 80s stocks. So they're buying 90s and, and newer. They shouldn't be buying new construction. They shouldn't be doing new construction. If somebody is buying expensive property today, and these are savvy investors, they're managing either billions or trillions of dollars, they know they're buying expensive property, right? But the reason they're doing it is because they're risk averse, right? They think that that money shouldn't be left in Japan or the Eurozone at this point of time because of very severe devaluation risk. So if, they're, if they're, their whole goal is being risk averse, why should they put it in new construction? By definition, that's more risky. So I'm, I'm not seeing any movement at all. But they, la they love it once the building is finished and once it's leased up. That's actually the least risky kind of product, right? Brand new product that is now leased up. Yeah, you're, you're not going to make much of a return on it. You might make 5 or 6%. But 5 or 6% is a damn sight better than what they can get in Japanese bonds or Euro bonds. So to them, it's still very lucrative. So I think things have gotten repriced.
there is a much higher value to cash flow today than there was 10 or 15 years ago because you, you simply can't make money elsewhere. So while real estate is way more expensive now, the, if you look at the delta between what, what you know, treasuries used to make and what real estate used to make, and today you look at what treasuries make and what real estate make, believe it or not, that delta is about the same, right? Real estate still makes 5 or 6% more than treasuries uh, on, a, on a national level. And so that's what's key making it uh, lucrative. So I don't believe that real estate causes the next crash. I think we caused the last one. There's so many other candidates for a real estate crash, though, right? I mean, there's a, a dozen different candidates that could cause the next crash. The debt gets to a point where it is just unsustainable, or you could have North Korea could go a little crazy one day, and all of a sudden everybody freaks out. True. Th those things tend to be fairly short, right? So, I mean, short of nuclear Armageddon, those things tend to be short, and they tend to settle down very quickly. The debt thing, though, is, is it's, it's like a wall that we're going to hit. But I, I often tell people that, you know, while we think that the United States debt is high, if you compare us to 20 other developed economies, we're going to look really, really good. We're at 104% of GDP for our debt. You look at places like China, 270%. You, know, percent. you look at you know, Japan, 250%. You look at the Eurozone. I mean, Eurozone has some healthy economies like Germany, but then they have a whole bunch of deadbeat economies that are just kind of alive because they are part of the euro. And the chances that one of these will collapse again, because they've already collapsed once, is so much higher than people all of a sudden losing trust in the dollar. So I, I don't foresee that happening in the short term. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not looking at what happens more than five years out. But the next five years, it's unlikely that we will cause a crisis because of our debt levels. But somebody will cause a crisis. You know, my number one bet is on Japan, number two on China, and number three, Italy. I mean, these are countries with absolutely insane levels of debt. And I think that because they're not the reserve currency of the world, it's unsustainable. Sooner or later, something really bad happens there. Now, in the short run, it's really bad for us. In the long run, it's really good for us. Because one thing that is highly predictable in times of you know, crashes like this is that the, the money always flees to quality. We are still, at this point, considered the highest quality money in the, in the world. So money will flee to us. Every time we've seen a crisis, we, you know, we saw the, the currency crisis in, in Asia in, in the late 90s, all that money came to the U.S. And it fueled our dot-com boom in 1998, because I think 97 was when that crash happened. And that money just poured into the U.S., unfortunately went to the wrong place, the stock market. And so it, that blew up two years later. So good and bad. Information that you're giving now is not necessarily directed only to investors. And this is what I really appreciate about you and the conversation we had on your last show was that it was more trends about, we talked a little bit more about housing then, but these are specific information that benefits everybody because these things affect the institutions that we borrow from just to go ahead and buy a house. Are you yeah. delivering some of this type of information in your webinars that you're doing through Multifamily U? My favorite webinar is, uh, is uh, and it's, it's archived there, it's live, you can take it at any point of time, 
um, is actually about how the banking system changed real estate forever. And if you wish, you can actually cross out the word real estate and write the word stock market. And I think almost 90% of what I put into the webinar would still make sense, right? Maybe even more than 90% would make sense for stocks because if you think about it, real estate and stocks are risk assets, right? And risk assets are very, very heavily tied to the state of the economy. All these people that are saying, oh, we need millions of homes. Well, I have a message for you. The moment a recession starts, we don't need those millions of homes because millions of people no longer want to buy them or no longer are able to buy them or are going to go into apartments or are going to downsize from apartments to mobile homes and, and you know, um, tiny homes or are just going to go live with mom and dad or are going to live in their car. So this shortage of real estate just vanishes like that when we lose a few million jobs. So in the end, when, when I look at real estate, when I look at stock markets, all these predictions that I've seen of shortages here and there are fair weather shortages. So my job to my investors is to basically protect their capital during bad times. And so I'm only making bets for, for things that make sense during those recessions. And, and, and from what I am seeing, the long-term economic trends of the world are supporting risk assets. The Federal Reserve is saying, you know what? We love bubbles. The bigger we blow them, the, the easier it is for the politicians to pay down their trillion-dollar deficit. So we'll blow more <laughs> bubbles. We just don't want to blow them too fast. Right. <laughs> now, you're in San Francisco. So what kind of information can you provide about what's going on up there in the commercial world or even the residential? I mean, you're talking about major housing issues from what i understand a lot of it is attached directly to the politicians and their lack of understanding how regulations and even zoning work and of course the cost have gotten out of control i'm sure it's very expensive too for commercial what what is your yep. thoughts on all of california and the mess that's been created well landlords are under attack in california right california just implemented rent control and even though New York had done it before us, New York's rent control was not statewide. It was for a city. We just implemented rent control on 38 million people. And so landlords are under attack here. But rent control, in my mind, is the absolutely the, the worst way to try and solve affordability. I am very uh, focused on the affordability issue because I think that this is a fundamental issue, right? So housing affordability you know, the only thing that I think comes before it is actually providing food for free. If you look at Grow Capitus's charitable con contributions for 2019, the first company that you see at the top is Habitat for Humanity, right? That's the, that's the company that we give large checks to uh, for our charitable donations. And it's because we believe that that's a fundamental need. And the problem is, what I'm seeing right now, Michelle, is that folks are using and politicians are using the words rent control to get elected. Rent control is a very populist way, a populist uh, platform, because we know it doesn't work. What is the most expensive rental market in the U.S.? San Francisco. It's had rent control for 30 years. What's one of the most expensive markets in the U.S.? Oakland. Parts of Oakland have had rent control for about 30 years. What we've seen, what an economist who is a, who's not tied to any particular party will tell you all day long, rent control in the long run 
damages people's ability to uh, to you know for it actually hikes up rents because no developers will develop in an area that is rent controlled and is this expensive as expensive as San Francisco. So if you look at the San Francisco Bay Area in the last 12 months, even though there's demand and it's a strong economy and there's jobs, the total increase in home prices was zero. Net net was zero. It was slightly negative. It was like minus 0.1 in the last 12 months. Well, how does that jive with an economy that in the Bay Area that produced, that created a whole bunch of new jobs? The answer is people just can't afford it. So rents are going down in the Bay Area and um, home prices are flat. And this is happening despite a strong economy. And I think a lot of it is because politicians are not doing the right thing. In my mind, the right answer is the one that Minneapolis came up with. I don't know if you heard about this, but Minneapolis banned single family zoning inside city limits. There is no such thing as single family zoning anymore in Minneapolis. So if you have a home that's sitting on an acre, you can go build new units. That's capitalism at play. Incentivize people to do the right thing, and you won't have to subsidize it. Rent control is the exact opposite. Encouraging them to go vertical and making it easier because that's just you have a density issue and you've got a space issue and you've got uh, you know only a certain amount of money that people can afford. So that makes all the sense in the world. I'm surprised Absolutely. in such a liberal state that Minnesota came up with that. Yeah, and and I I'm surprised too, but I think that it's it's a very strong solution. And and the reason you know it's it's very difficult in liberal states for for people to implement density-based solutions, but they are the right solutions. You look at Europe. You travel to any of the great cities in Europe. You know Paris, London. Densities are higher than they are in the U.S. We had a lot of land. We used up that land. We've now gotten to the limit of our freeways. We don't like train systems in the U.S. or or mass transit at high speeds then in the end, given that the number of people keep increasing, density is the only true solution. Rent control doesn't create any apartments. It doesn't create any space or any land. But the moment you change density, so a place that had a, had a single-family home can now have a triplex or a quadplex, and the utilization of space is, is radically better. Who are the only people unhappy with that? Well, people who had really expensive single-family homes. They're afraid that the values of those homes could fall, and they probably will, at least to some extent. But then they can compensate by basically turning their home into a triplex and make a lot of money from it. So a lot of people that are opposed to it are, are opposed to it simply because they don't want the value of their property to fall, not for any other reason. It's the right thing to do. Everybody knows it. Now, have you ever approached or thought about it? And I know this has um, there's probably not a lot of money in it, but mm-hmm. contacting the federal government or HUD or something along those lines, because at least they're trying to be proactive to find solutions for mm-hmm. these issues. Plus, then there's the the empowerment zones where they're providing funding for even some of the commercial projects to come zone. in there. Opportunity mm-hmm. zone. Thank you. So mm-hmm. have have you even explored that, or you just don't even want to deal because the investments that you have with your investors is so much less aggravating and obviously that you don't have to go through all that red tape and you have wonderful returns. Have you ever thought well, about working with the government? Cause you have the solutions. So I'm not, 
I, you know, yeah, I, I do not want to work with the government. They're very difficult to work with. Having said that, Opportunity Zones is a fully baked project uh, that I'm very involved in. I've already completed my first Opportunity Zone project. I might have an, a second one this month. That one really made sense. And, and so I'm, I'm involved in it. Now, on the hard side, it's not Neil Bauer that needs to work with hard. You know, I, it, it, it is hard to reform itself. When you're trying to do a hard loan for an apartment complex, it takes so long that even though HUD offers the best prices, no developer wants the brain damage. So what HUD is doing right now, or what they're talking about doing right now, is to cut the red tape so that the housing development organization can come up with billions of dollars, give them to developers so we can build much faster, right? We're not, we're not looking to build cheaper. We're just looking to get the loan from HUD uh, faster, so it doesn't take 18 months to get a hard loan, and that I think is huge, because HUD can fund a very large number of apartments, and they don't have to they don't have to subsidize anything. Just by speeding up their approval process, they can cut our holding costs so substantially that we can build apartments much cheaper. Right, without the incentive and even other tax breaks or things like that, because you yeah. don't have two years of just n- nonsense. Right. If, if, wow. if a hard loan can be approved in four months at the same terms as today, it's a game changer. An incredible amount of money would flow into affordable apartments if that happens. So to me, I'm, I'm looking at those kinds of departments to see if they can do the right things. I mean, Opportunity Zone was a bipartisan plan, right? A Democrat and a Republican got together and wrote it, which tells me that it's possible today for for you know these kinds of things to pass i mean housing affordability is becoming an incredible pain there's a hundred thousand people that are homeless in california you, you know if this number goes up you know what happens to crime right wow that's very really very interesting. substantial impact i could listen to you talk about this for days i mean have you, have <laughs> you been done a ted talk yet or you're, you haven't uh, gone down that road sooner or later i, I obviously I, I i present at a dozen conferences a year uh, but of course, that's a receptive audience because they are, you know, a lot of them are real estate professionals themselves. I, I just feel that it's really all about policies. You want to fix affordability. Don't do populist stuff like rent control. That, all that'll do is get politicians elected. You've really got to think about how is everybody else in the world managing to have much smaller countries with with a much higher density of people, and they still have a happiness index that's far better than ours. It makes total you, sense. You look at all these places in Europe that have happiness index levels higher than the U.S., clearly having a home on two acres doesn't make you happier. Yeah, interesting perspective. So what kind of projects do you have now, uh, and what categories and what kind of investors are you looking for? Well, I am actually... You know, I do a lot of multifamily. Um, so we do new construction multifamily. We do value-add multifamily. If we can find a property that's, you know, 20 or 30 years old and we, we can improve it, that's always the default go. If we can find extremely fast-growing areas where we can find a very friendly city allowing us to construct very fast, we do that. The other vertical that we're getting into that we're super excited about, Michelle, is self-storage. Because self-storage is an extension to apartments. If you think about it, in the last 15 years, apartments are shrinking. So new construction apartments are smaller than they were in the 80s and 90s, simply because of cost. 
single-family homes are shrinking even faster, right? So you look at an average single-family home today and compare that to one 20, 25 years ago, they're smaller. Uh, you know, we were building McMansions in 2005, and that trend went away. And now they're building a lot smaller. They're building a lot more condos and townhomes. And so as shrinkage happens, and people just don't have the ability to, you know, buy these large homes, and boomers are looking to downsize, the one area that is outperforming across the board is self-storage. Believe it or not, returns for self-storage, and this is, information is public, anybody can Google it and find the chart, are outsized compared to single-family, multifamily, hotels, residential, name any other real estate vertical. They're all clustered together in a nice area, and obviously they're doing much better than the stock market is. But then there's this big gap, and then there's self-storage. And so I'm getting into self-storage with a environmentally friendly tweak. I'm buying self-storages and installing large amounts of solar, building EV chargers, registering them on Tesla's network, and then having people come into my self-storage to buy energy at 39 cents a kilowatt hour, and I'm generating it off of solar panels at five or six cents a kilowatt hour. That is giving me a massive revenue pop on on self-storage because it's so much easier to install self-storage, solar on self-storage than it is on residential. That's fascinating. It's very timely also. And you know that people never want to get rid of their junk. So I'm I'm sure half of the stuff that's in that storage unit is stuff that really could be thrown out. (laughs) But people would rather pay a couple hundred bucks a month to keep the junk, you know. And, and, you know, what I found is (laughs) that when, let's say you have a storage unit that's a 10 by 10 that you rented for 90 bucks right? And your apartment is 1200 bucks. If the landlord of the apartment hikes your rent by, by 5%, that hike is $60 and it might pinch. And you might say, you know what, I'm going to leave because he, he raised my rent by 5%. On a $90 storage unit, if he raises it by 5%, that's $4.50. It's below your threshold of thinking that this is outrageous. It is outrageous. You know, inflation is 2%, so the rent should be going up 2%. But you can raise rents faster because people don't think about $5 the way they think about $60. Mm-hmm. Right? They, people yeah. don't think in percentages. That allows uh, prices for self-storage to be increased at a, at a significantly higher rate than prices for, um, let's say, apartments. So it's a, it's a psychological thing, but we certainly take advantage of that. And um, that's why we're doing uh, these kinds of self-storage projects, both new construction and uh, also existing properties where we can go in and add more units, add the the solar piece. I'm really excited about the EV piece. I mean, we're seeing Tesla just had the greatest quarter in its history. They sold a massive number of vehicles. And just adding, being it's so simple to install an EV charger. It's a one-day process to get onto the Tesla network. And now the cars, as they're driving around, are telling their drivers to go, you know, oh, there's a, there's a self-storage facility right next to you. You can go charge there, right? They have a supercharger. Those kinds of features are great. I think these are the gas stations of the future. So these are all, you know, all automatically set up. When, when our, our EV chargers register with the Tesla station, the driver just comes in, plugs the car in, you know, juices it up and drives away. In the background, the Tesla has charged a certain amount of money to the driver's card, and they're going to keep their piece of it and reimburse the rest to us. 
it's very nice. There's no there's no credit cards. You know, it's just all seamless. Well, to be fair though, electricity, even when somebody is buying it from my EV charger, does cost about a third of what gas costs. Here in California, we're paying 4.49 for gas. The electric equivalent of filling up that tank is only about a dollar 20. So I think that the driver gets a good deal too, in my mind. You always seem to be really ahead of the curve when it comes to any of these projects and how you structure everything. But I, what I really appreciate is your, your delivery, the way you explain everything. The average person could listen and get it and still enjoy it and still feel that they're part of you know, le- learning a little bit more about the economy and investing or real estate in general. You, know, you don't have to uh, be worth millions of dollars in order to, to have to understand it, you know? Absolutely. And well, that's the sort of service that you're performing, Michelle. I mean, you have so many people listening in and learning from these shows. Uh, It's amazing how much knowledge is out there today. And as long as you're bringing in, you know, presenters that can explain this stuff, I think people can learn a lot. You know, I, I have to say that I'm learning more from radio shows and podcasts these days than I'm learning from books. Because I, like everybody else, I'm attention deficit and just more pleasing to sit and put on some headphones and just listen to people who know what they're talking about in, in different areas. It's, it's very powerful. You could say almost that all of the success you have is related to listening to podcasts and, and talk radio shows. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not shy of saying that. I think, yeah. I mean, you've got to listen uh, and you've got to absorb to be able to stay ahead of the curve. And the people that are calling into these shows are, you know, staying ahead of the curve because it's, it's getting harder to make money. I, I mean, in, in 1982, you know, you could get 18% by walking into a bank and leaving your money there. Right now, I think it's one quarter of one eighth of 1%. Huge difference. So is, is there a certain uh, criteria that you have for investors to at least People can kind of work towards eventually getting into that category so that they could participate in some of these great projects and the wonderful returns that you're giving them. About 80% of our projects are for accredited investors. So they have to have a, either a million dollar net worth or about 200K a year in income. And we, we provide more details about those. About 20% of them are for people that may not have that level of income, but are fairly sophisticated. And then, you know, we have individual conversations with them to make sure that that, uh, they do that. I don't think our projects are good for, you know, oh, I've got 50K saved and that's my total, that's my total savings. I I think that legally I could take your money, but I, I just don't think it's a good idea. I think that we are meant to be part of a solution because our projects are illiquid. You know, you can go out and buy a... $75,000 $75,000 rental probably would have to be in the rust belt at that price. But if it doesn't go, if it doesn't work, you can sell it. But the investments that you make with folks like me are, are illiquid and take a while to, uh, you know, to, um, for, for them to work. Yes, you're getting cash flow, but uh, what if you needed the money? So I think uh, I tell people that large, I have investors that are, you know, just regular folks uh, making a salary. And then I've got investors that are worth $100 million. Uh, all of that works. I, I just wouldn't, would be very hesitant to take someone's last 50K. Well, and that's the other thing I appreciate about you is you actually have a conscience. And you're going to tell that to the potential people that are talking to you or even people that are attending your, your seminars and things like that. Because most people, and we discussed this in your, in your last show, they don't think like that. 
And, you know, whether it's karma or not, or just there's certain things you just don't do. You know, when people are looking at working with an investment group, taking into consideration, do they really have a conscience? Because that matters, especially when you're dealing with somebody's money and, and their savings and their hard-earned dollar. And you've always been very sincere about that. Don't stop doing that. <laughs> Don't stop because it Thank makes you. a big difference. It makes a big difference for people. You've done well, my friend. <laughs> You're the investor with a heart. <laughs> Thank you. I'm always trying. And, and yeah. I, I feel it when, you know, project doesn't go well. It, it, you know, keeps me up at night. So not all of them go well. And it, it definitely keeps me up at night. That's one of the big reasons why I tell investors, you know, if this is money that you can afford to lose, that's something you should invest with me. If you cannot afford to lose it, then treasury bonds are probably the best bet. And people appreciate the honesty, and, and especially in a world of real estate and investing where it necessarily hasn't been like that for a long time. And, you know, obviously yeah. we've had our that's, spurts, so it doesn't have the best reputation. I, I have to agree with that. Um, I feel when I talk with investors sometimes and I use, you know, I, I tell them I come from the world of technology and that helps, right? Because they realize that my perspective is different and I've been schooled in a different area, but, but real estate, sometimes people kind of give me that look, which tells me that they're thinking, you know, this, this guy's only, you know, one step better than a car salesperson. So I think real estate has a bad rep and I think that it deserves it. I go to conferences and I'm teaching and the sales pitches are so sleazy. Um, it's, it's just un, unbelievable that people are actually doing this. And, you know, it, clearly it works for them. Um, but I don't think it works for the party that's, that's, you know, that's paying in. It doesn't work for the investor. It just works for, for you. And, and I think that there's a happy medium there. There's a happy medium where it works for both parties. And it's not a huge amount of work in real estate to get there because by itself, real estate is an insanely powerful asset class with crazy tax benefits. And so if you're already involved in an area that has those, that kind of power and those kinds of benefits, then I think it behooves you to look for a win-win. Yeah, it's exactly right. And because there's, there's a lot of opportunities out there and you don't have to yeah, be manipulative and you don't have to misrepresent the, the product will take care of itself as long as mm -hmm. there's the right people involved in it on both sides. You're exactly right. Yeah. I really find so much value in the information that you always provide is that people can relate it to their own lives and what's going on in the economy and the trends, whether it's investing or housing. So it applies to everybody. You don't have to, you don't have to be just an investor because it's, it's things that you just go, oh, wow, that does make sense now. It might get people uh, an insight as to why there's certain things going on in the financial world. Let's keep in mind that affects everybody's life. So you don't have to just be involved in the stock market. All of these things come together and people wonder why, well, why is my credit card interest rate this way? Or why is my car financing this? Well, these are the reasons why. So make a comment on that, and then uh, I, will, I will let you go. Well, um, all I'd like to say is whether it's the stock market, the economy, real estate, these things are all connected together. And I enjoy talking about the interconnections between them and how they affect your profits or the interest rate that you're getting for your home. And that's really a fulfilling discussion. So I'm glad that, uh, that folk, people enjoy listening to that. And do you want to give your website information so that way people can get to uh, contact you or at least start learning and following? 
Absolutely. The right place to start is a website called multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. And we host a webinar there every week about these sorts of topics. So everything from how the banking changed real estate to uh, what the tax impact is going to be of tax laws in 2020 and a hundred other topics. So come in, Take the webinars. They're not pitchy at all. There's no sales pitch. They're an hour long, so they're just perfect for you to consume knowledge and learn from it. So multifamilyu.com. Perfect. You said consume knowledge. That's all you're trying to do is, is give people the right tools, quality content, so they could learn something and use it to whatever they need to. Thank you so much, Absolutely. Neil. I appreciate it. And I'm looking so forward to the next show. And we're going to definitely do, uh, I don't want to say an hour, but I'm, I'm going to milk all the time that I can from you and suck <laughs> all the knowledge out that you want to deliver to the audience. So thank you so much for always just being a wonderful guest. Thanks for having me on the show again, Michelle. Have a wonderful day. All of our guests and experts' information on the shows are listed on our website, everythinghometalkshow.com. I encourage you to check it out and begin to use it as a resource to meet, hire, and learn from good people doing good business and good things. Just click anywhere on the banners and enjoy the show. Remember to like and follow Everything Home Talk Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please let us know which topics you want to hear about and which guests you want to learn from. I appreciate you listening. Make it a great day, everybody. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.